0: Comfortable? Okay. Is it cold in here do you guys? It's kind of cold. I don't know how to turn the heat up, actually. I'm not sure how to turn the heat up. Um, okay. So, I've shared this story with a couple of you before. Uh, some of you have heard it before. Um, but when I went to seminary... The Lord uh, gave me two part-time jobs to help pay the bills. I was 42, as some of you may know, I went to seminary, quit quit my job and went to seminary at 42, and the word spread pretty quickly in one of these jobs. It was with a secular company. It was a forklift company. We sold forklifts, and we serviced for, forklifts. Um, the word spread pretty quickly in the company that uh, there was a 42-year-old seminarian in, in the building, and... All the employees wanted to come by and see the weird guy. And so I became friends with a lot of them and um, they wanted to come talk theology. It was very unusual. I guess maybe for some of them, I was the only theologian, quote unquote, theologian that they had ever known. So they wanted to come by and talk about their views on God and life. And so I realized I was no longer Jim the CPA guy, I was now Jim the theologian. And they would come and talk to me. I, was, I became kind of the company chaplain as the, as the company president would call me. These people would come by and they would sit in the chair and they would they'd want to talk about things. Um, Joy was a young Jewish woman and she wanted me to tell her that her Judaism would take her to heaven. Glenn was a Mormon He wanted me to affirm that his Mormonism was, in fact, under the Christian umbrella. Bill was a Catholic. He wanted me to tell him that all of his religious activity was a pathway to heaven. Kathy was unfulfilled in her marriage, and she wanted me to tell her that it was okay to leave her husband. Ray was just one of those nice guys. He was a nice guy. Everybody liked Ray. He was a nice guy. And he, he went to church at, uh, on Christmas and Easter, and he was a nice guy. He paid his taxes. And he mowed his grass, and he wanted to tell me that God was impressed with his nice guy church going. Amy was Amy had a pregnant teenage daughter, and she wanted me to tell her that it was okay for her daughter to abort the child. And Paul, the owner of the company, he just wanted me to tell him there was no hell. So what I realized, I learned pretty quickly as a quote unquote seminarian, quote unquote theologian, what people really want from you. They don't want the truth. They want you to affirm what they believe. They want you to affirm what they already believe. This is what I learned as a religious, quote unquote, professional. Most people don't want the truth. They don't want what God says. They don't want it. And if you won't affirm them and what they already think they know or believe, they don't have much time for you. And I've noticed this odd thing about human beings. I think many of you can understand. When you're buying a product, let's just say you're at the mall. You want a name brand, right? Most of you, don't you want a name brand? Shubami doesn't want one. If you could afford a name brand, would you want a name brand? But you know what? At church, people will listen to anything. They don't want name brand Christianity. They want you to dumb it down for them. So they can feel good about themselves before God. Uh, I've learned this many, many times in many, many different ways. So at the mall, we want... We want, we want the best, but somehow when it comes to the spiritual realm, we'll take anything you'll sell me as long as it doesn't mess up my life, right? As long as I can live the way I want to live and you don't infringe upon my freedom as a, you know, human being. Tell me anything but the truth. Obviously that's not true for you guys. But if you've had much experience sharing the truth out in the world, you understand what I'm talking about. So this was my experience. It was quite an eye-opener to become a spiritual authority. They didn't want the truth. They just wanted me to affirm what they already believe. So the last few weeks, we've been talking about how Jesus talked about the gospel, right? The red words, the gospel according to Jesus, John MacArthur's most famous book. If you've never read it, you owe it to yourself. The gospel of courting to Jesus. So we've this will be our third sermon and kind of looking at the red words and how Jesus evangelized what he has to say about true conversion. I'm not sure, yeah, there's a sermon series that could be more important than to understand what he has to say. He is pristinely clear. He's first, you know, okay, let's say it this way. You're all in with Christ or you're not in at all. This is just the truth of the gospel. You're all in, and we're going to hear it tonight. You're either all in, or you're not in. So quit playing games, right? Quit playing games with God. This is what we need to tell our friends. This is what we need to tell our colleagues who are marginally or nominally religious in a Christian sense. So we've been hearing the last few weeks Jesus say things like, you know, a real Christian, what? We saw it last week, the parable of the soils. What does a real Christian do? What? He bears fruit. There's always fruit in the life of a true Christian. There's always a relationship going on. The the true believer builds his life upon the words of Jesus. There's obedience, we saw last week, too, that, that uh, while some appear to receive the word of God with joy and they look real, but when it gets hard or inconvenient, what? <coughs> they leave. So these are some of the foundational truths that we've seen so far as we've talked about these things. A true believer is different from the world. We, we know this. This is not rocket science. So I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 14. A passage you won't hear preached very often in, in the modern church. Luke 14. Um, some people don't like this text. Uh, but this is how Jesus talks. I've noticed that <laughs> I've been a pastor for a long time. There's a lot of texts that people don't like. Right. Uh, this happens to be one of them. I'm going to pick up here. Luke 14, verse 25. Now, Jesus had a great multitude following him. And Jesus was prone to do this kind of thing. He had a multitude following him. And he would turn around and say something and they would leave. Right? This this happened a number of times with him. But he's got a multitude. Why doesn't he give them a seeker sensitive message? I mean, why doesn't he give them a one of those messages where he could have thousands of converts? You know why? Because God's not interested in superficial believers. He's not interested. He's not interested in lukewarm Christianity. He's going to tell you the truth and you can have him or not. I love this about the gospel. I love this about the the biblical gospel. Okay, Luke 14, verse 25. A great multitude were going along with Jesus and he turned and he said to him. (laughs) This is how he opens up. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and he doesn't hate his own father and hate his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, yes, hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, how many of you have heard this preach before? Okay. You don't hear this, you don't hear this text preach. Why? Well, on the face of it, it's offensive, right? Just on the face of it. It is offensive that Jesus, he has this multitude falling and he turns around and he says this extreme thing, this absolute extreme thing that lands on man's ears very, yeah, in a very hard way. We see that Jesus is not really interested in producing religious people. He's interested in producing disciples So I'm going to start, I'm going to run at it like this. Let's start this way. The two most oft-repeated, I'm going to start like this. The two most oft-repeated recorded sayings of Jesus in the Gospels. Anybody know what the first one would be? It's kind of simple. If you thought about it very long, you could guess it. Probably 20 plus times Jesus says in the Gospels, follow me, right? You could have guessed that one. All right. The second one amplifies and helps us to understand the first one. It quantifies it it appears six times, twice in Matthew, twice in Luke, once in Mark, once in John. I'll read it to you from Matthew 10. You don't need to turn there. Matthew 10, 39. Jesus says, he who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Now, it's a little bit cryptic. Some of you may not understand it uh, at first glance. I'm going to give you Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. He paraphrases all six of the, the times it appears in the, in the Bible, and I've kind of Uh, aggregated those into one quote. Here's how he paraphrases it. If your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. I think that's brilliant. But if you forget about yourself and look to me, Jesus says, you'll find both yourself and me. If you grasp and cling to life on your terms, you'll lose it. But if you let that life go, you'll get life on God's terms. Anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life. But if you let it go, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. I want you to understand, Jesus said this six times, or it's recorded six times in the Gospels. What is he saying? It ain't about you. You know, this is a course of of ICM. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. It's always been about him. It'll always be about him. And we are to love him to such a degree, right? That some would even say we hate our family by comparison. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. Jesus says, you got to love me first. You got to love me first, right? This is what he says. This is what he says. And every true disciple understands that. If not in actual fact, we understand it in desire, right? I was talking to someone earlier. Isn't it your desire to love Jesus supremely? Do you always succeed in that, in that, in that endeavor? No. But isn't it your heart's desire? Isn't it like the, the, the Peter-Jesus uh, exchange in John 21, right? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? What did Peter say? Yeah, you know I love you. You know it. You're God. You know it, right? Right? And I was telling this someone earlier, you know, this was this is my ultimate assurance. I have many levels of assurance. One is God knows I love him. I know he knows I love him. Even when I act badly and and no one else could tell I love him. He knows I love him. Right. So there's this intimacy thing that's going on. Mark uh, 1230. We love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Not perfectly, but it's there. The desire is there. To love him supremely. So obviously the complete gospel is not here in these few verses that I've just read to you. But the mindset of a true disciple is here. And we'll discuss that as we go through the text. I'm going to turn over to Matthew 10 real quick. And you don't have to go with me there. Matthew 10. And let me just read to you couple of verses that I think will help us understand what's being said in the Luke passage. So I'm in Matthew 10, verse 34 through 36. Listen to Jesus. Matthew 10, 34 to 36. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. What's Jesus saying here? What's he saying? That there's no relationship between darkness and light. Okay? There's no, there will only be antipathy. And so there can only be hostility that the darkness will have against the light. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Some of us have experienced this. I hope none of you have experienced, I'll just own it, okay? Some of us have experienced this. And it's a difficult thing. Jesus talks about this enmity between the real Christian and the world in John 15. The world has hated me, it will hate you. Yes, Jesus can heal any family if they are in submission to him, but if if more than one member is not in submission to him, a family can be destroyed. This happens. I've seen it, I've seen it, it's difficult. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness and what fellowship has light with darkness as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 10, six six fourteen. 14. So you go on to the, the next verse there over in uh, yeah, Matthew 10, 37. Jesus says, he who loves father or mother more than me, this amplifies and clarifies what he's saying over in Luke. If you love father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What's he saying? He's just explaining that what he's really talking about here is supreme love, right? It's all Jesus is first. And the the truth of the matter is, if you're biblically literate, you understand if Jesus is first, then you actually know how to love your spouse. Then you actually know how to love your kids. Jesus is not obviously telling us to hate Literally hate our family. The Bible teaches us to care for our family, right? So we have to understand this is a Semitic expression. It's a Hebraism that helps us understand simply preference and priority. Jesus is first. You know, I've talked to you many times about the deification of the family. This is always wrong. Family is not first. Family has never been first. Family, this is... This is demonic, that family is first. God must be first, because you can't love your family properly if you don't love the biblical God first. You can't even begin to love your family properly. In fact, everything you do, if you deify your family, everything you do argues against loving God supremely, which is the worst thing you can do in your family. So there's a lot to be said there, or could be said there. I won't develop it. Any further. Obviously, again, I want to reiterate this back to Luke 14. This is not about literally hating your family. And anybody who anybody who thinks it is is obviously not understanding or is just being willfully ignorant. This is not what Jesus means. It means there will be a supreme love. While most church members, and I want you to hear me say this, while most church members never love Christ like that, every true believer does. OK, I want, I want you to make the distinction. While most church members never love Jesus like that and churchgoers, every true believer does. They love Christ to the extreme in an uncompromising way. Okay, back to Luke 14, verse 27. This is, I think, the third thing. Yeah, this is the third most uh, repeated quote of Jesus in the Gospels. It's in five times. Listen to what he says, verse 27, Luke 14. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, you understand this. You've heard this many times if you've been in the church very long. What is he saying? What did the disciples hear? When Jesus said that, what did the disciples hear? What did the the bystanders hear? Did they hear that Jesus' cross or the cross you may bear is your mother-in-law or your job or your boss or some stupid temporal thing? No. Everyone who heard Jesus speak that day knew exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about death. The cross was one thing in the first century. It was death. What's he saying? You have to die. And we talked about this. You have to die to death. To go with the, the living God. You have to die to death. What does that mean? We, we, we die to sin. Are we perfect? No, we're not perfect. We're, we're in the fight. We're in the Romans 7 fight. But we're dying to sin. I'm dead to sin. I no longer live you know, on that pathway. I'm on this pathway to God. Yes, I still sin. I still struggle. I still must confess and repent. I have to do all these things. I must cooperate with the Holy Spirit in my sanctification. But I'm no longer moving in that direction. I'm moving in the direction of God. I've died to death. I no longer love death. I no longer pursue death. I'm pursuing life. That's what is meant about the cross We die to death. We die to those things that were in the supreme position before we met Christ. And here's what I want to say to you. Many of you already know this. You say, well, we die to our before Christ priorities, right? But what does God do? What does God do? (laughs) Many times he resurrects those priorities in a way that honors him. Now it's not all about you and your goal to get rich. Now it's about Him, and He may prosper you. He may. It's it's His prerogative to prosper you. Um, God may very well take your selfish ambition and resurrect it into an ambition that honors Him and, as we know, ultimately brings us the greatest amount of joy So the disciples weren't confused. They knew exactly what he was talking about. All the hearers knew what he was talking about. He's he's talking about death. There is a death before you can live. There is a death before you can live. So it's what we see in those two parables in Matthew 13. Remember the guy that found the treasure? What happened? Remember the guy that, that found the treasure? The treasure being Jesus, what did he do? He sold all that he had, that he could possess the field, right? Everything changed for him. The other example there in Matthew 13 is the guy that finds the pearl of great price. What did he do? (laughs) He had to have that pearl, man. He had to have Jesus. Jesus was first. Jesus took priority. Jesus was his supreme devotion. So this is what we see even in the biblical parables about the priority the true believer has. For Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you know it. If any man is in Christ, what is he? Someone tell me. He's new. It's all new. It's all new. The old things have passed away. My before Christ priorities are no longer my priorities. Now it's my after Christ priorities. Him and anything he puts in, in, uh, in my life, Right? Him, and he may resurrect some of the old stuff in such a way that honors him. He may not. You may not be a CPA anymore. You may be a preacher in Milan with eight people in the church. You don't know what he's going to do. You don't know what God's going to do. And what I want to say to you as a Christian, is that okay with you if you don't know what God's going to do? Listen, you got to get to where it's okay to not know what God's going to do and just receive what comes, right? Happily receive it. I'll be honest with you. Right now, the church is as discouraging as it's ever been. It's never been this discouraging. And I I confessed to some guy the other day that um, another brother, I said, you know, it's a little bit discouraging right now. But God's still God. I mean, he's given us 16 years and it's been awesome. It's just been fun, man. Karen actually used that word the other day. It's just been fun. It's been so much fun. 92 nations, 800 people, 16 years. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. If it's ending, it's ending. It's not what we want, but I don't control that. God may resurrect ICM, right? He may not, but he's still God and I delight in him. Okay, your dreams, your careers, your aspirations, can can you talk like that genuinely? Can you let God have them? Whatever comes, comes. Karen said it the other day. He's always doing a good thing. Do you believe it or not? I mean, this is kind of a, kind of a big deal, obviously. Kind of important for us to, to understand these things. When the natural man hears the words of Jesus in Luke 14, 27, he hears loss. When the regenerate man hears the same words, he hears gain. We died to death. We're raised up. We're raised up to a newness of life. You guys know Paul. Perfect Jew. Here's what he says about his perfect Jewishness. The thing he loved more than anything else was he was a perfect Jew before Christ's priority. Here he is after Christ's priority. Philippians 3, 7 and 8. Famous text. You know it. G- Paul says, whatever things were gained to me before, those things now are lost to me for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things as lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but dung. His former priority is dung compared to Jesus. This is kind of another Hebraism, right? That we understand by contrast. You must hate your family. What is Jesus saying? Simply, you must love me supremely. And if you love me supremely, we know from other biblical passages, you will then know how to love your family. (laughs) In a God-honoring way, which is the most important way to love your family. You know, the way you love your family needs to be pointing to Christ. The way you do your job needs to be pointing to Christ. All these things are true. It's true in every sphere. Let's continue. Verse 28. For which one of you... When he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough uh, to complete it. I'm back in Luke 14, verse 28. This is 29. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to uh, finish, all who observe will begin to ridicule him. Verse 30, saying, This man began and he built, but he wasn't able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first, down, first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20. Verse 32, or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. It's what we've been saying in this series. There's a cost to this. And I... I abominate, I abhor and I hate much of the the modern Protestant church. I grew up in where I where I grew up in my part of the country where if somebody shows any interest in all in Christ. Right. Oh, well, he's converted. Oh, well, let's baptize him. Let's let's let him pray the prayer. Let him become a church member. And all he did was ask a question, man. We're going to throw him into the baptistry, Right. He must be a Christian. I hate this. Jesus said what? What is he saying to us right there? Count it. Count it. People will hate you. Your family may hate you. It happened. First century. Uh, I was talking to someone earlier, right? You know, now when someone wants to be baptized, I, 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 make, I try to make sure that they have some sense of what the gospel is and that they've been converted. They didn't do this in the first century. Why did they not have to do this in the first century? Jerusalem. Why did they not have to do this? Because nobody went to Christ unless it was real because it cost them everything. I don't bet. I bet there's nothing in none of us in here. It really cost us everything to come to Christ. First century Jerusalem to profess Jesus. You lost everything. You were ostracized by the um, synagogue. Nobody would do business with you. Nobody would socialize, socialize with you. And most likely your family would throw you out. So you didn't have to, you know, do some, do the homework on someone professing to be a Christian. No, nobody in their right mind would profess to be a Christian unless it was real. Right? Jesus is saying, obviously, count the cost. People will hate you. You heard me read the text. Members of a of man's own household will become his enemies. It's possible. It happens. I like what John MacArthur, famous preacher in the state, says. Jesus doesn't offer us a makeover. What does he offer us? You know it. He's offering a takeover. <laughs> this, it ain't about, oh, this will be about a little bit of me and a little bit about Jesus, right? This, we'll, we'll be kind of working together as partners. No, he's Lord. He's Lord. He's in charge. You're not in charge. You were never in charge. Now, there's there's this illusion that we all operate under that we're kind of in charge. You're not in charge. He's in charge. And if you profess to be a Christian, you should happily acknowledge he's in charge. I'm no longer in charge. No matter how much it costs, I'm not in charge. I'll do what my Lord tells me. It's what the word means. You know, we always accentuate the savior thing. Yeah, he is savior, but you know that the word Lord, uh, like maybe by a, like by tenfold or twentyfold or fiftyfold, the time the the, the the number of times the word Lord appears in the Gospels as compared to savior. He's Lord. He means to be Lord. This is not a makeover. <laughs> it's a takeover. And for all of, those who, all of us here who know Christ, praise God for the takeover, right? Praise God for the takeover. I'm sure I would be dead by now if it weren't for the takeover. I'm sure I would be. Jesus says, count the cost. Count the cost. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. Christ doesn't say, I want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self. I've come to kill it. Half measures are worthless. I will give you a new self. Then Lewis says, there's no bargaining with God about this. I love it. Right? You don't get to bargain with God. Oh, a little bit of religion, Lord. I'll, I'll, I'll do a little bit of religion. He's not impressed. He's not interested. If a man would come after me, let Him take up his cross and follow me. That's what's at stake. That's the issue. I will die to myself. But in dying to myself, I find myself. This is the the miracle of, of true Christianity. In dying to my old self, I find the self God created me to be all along. In redemption, in atonement, I find who I was made to be, right? To, and, 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 you know, you, you, you delight in God. You learned how to begin to delight in God for the first time in your life. And we were all created to delight in God. And if you don't delight in God, you are still alienated from your God. This is one of the th- beautiful things about Christianity. In, in conversion we learn to begin to delight in God supremely above any and all other things. Verse 33, so therefore Luke 14, "So therefore no one of you can be my disciple, who what? Who doesn't give up everything? You, Do we have to sell everything to be a Christian? We talked about this. Was it last week? No, it was two weeks ago with the rich young ruler. Do we have to sell everything to be a Christian? No, we don't. But we would. We would. If he told us, because he's so valuable, if he told us to do it, we would do it. Hey, man, I, I just invite you to go home and spend time alone with God. Would you do it? Would you lay everything down if he called you tomorrow to do a, you know, an extraordinary supernatural kind of thing? Would you do it if you're a right thinking person? You would, of course, do it (laughs) because he's talking about eternal reward as opposed to temporal comfort. You don't have to be an you don't have to be much over. Well, an 85 IQ can handle that, right? That's 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 not rocket science. Plus, here's the deal. Even if there's not eternal reward, which He promises, here's the deal for those of you, some of you already know. There's joy in it. There's, 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 there's fulfillment in it. There's joy, deep fulfillment, deep pleasure in walking with your Creator. So obviously, we don't have to sell everything. This is... I, I hate people that, you know... Well, who don't know how to rightly divide the word. Don't hate them. I hate, I hate the way they teach. Jesus is simply saying, it will cost you everything. Verses 34 to 35. Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? Verse 35. It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him here. Some have been, con- been confused about this statement as to what it means and how it fits into context. It's quite simple. Jesus is talking about salt that becomes tasteless. If you know anything about your chemistry, pure salt never becomes tasteless. How does salt become tasteless? If it's polluted with a foreign agent. And what did we learn last week from the soils? Remember, Remember the, the pollution of the soils? One was affliction and persecution. That soil became unfruitful. That's where salt becomes tasteless. The other fell to away due to worries of the world and the love of money. Both appeared to be Christian, but they weren't Christian. They proved they proved that they were salt that became tasteless. They became polluted with the things of the world we I read to you last week John 15 Jesus says the branch that does not bear fruit does not abide so if we don't abide we don't bear fruit and the branch that doesn't bear fruit is cut cut off and cast into the fire it is good for nothing it is un, it is like unsalty salt so Real Christians are salty to the end, right? We're salty to the end. We've counted the cost as Jesus as Jesus has called us to count it. Count it, man. Do you want God above all things? Because those are the only terms He offers. He offers no other terms. There are no other terms. We accept on Christ's terms, or we don't accept. Now, again, we can play religion all our lives with God. Even in a Christian context, we can play Christian religion all our lives. But you haven't come to Christ on his terms. His terms are always non-negotiable. If any man would come to me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Die to death. Come and really live. Right? That's the invitation. That's the invitation to the gospel. I'm going to close with a C.S. Lewis illustration. Weight of Glory. Some of you have read this book. C.S. Lewis likens God to the sea, okay? God's the sea. That's, the sea's the metaphor for God, okay? He says, Most of us come to the sea, but we never get in. You guys are familiar with this? I'm sure some of you are. We never get in. He says, We tend to dabble and splash on the, so- on the shore. We don't swim in the deeps. We dabble in splash on the shore shore where it's safe, where we're still kind of in control, right? Isn't this this how most Christians live, most professed Christians? I never go deep with God. Really? I never do. Now, I dabble in splash. I never go deep. I think this is a brilliant insight by C.S. Lewis. Again, I've observed this many, many times in the church. And he says, some will go a little bit out, but they hold on to a lifeline that connects them to everything temporal on shore. And then he captures the essence of true discipleship with with these words. He says, the lifeline is really a death line. Listen, if you won't let go, if you won't let go of this life, Lewis says it's a death line. Okay, you're hanging on to a death line. You have to die to yourself. If you are to be raised up again in newness of life, it's the whole imagery of baptism, right? But Lewis says um, the lifeline is really a death line. Swimming lessons are better than a lifeline. you got to learn to swim, man, like a Christian, out in the deep with God. Christians take swimming lessons, right? Listen to this. God and Satan agree that dabbling and splashing are of little consequence. Yeah. Satan's laughing. If you're a dabbler or a splasher, Satan's laughing at you. What matters, what God desires and Satan fears is precisely the further step out of your depth, out of your control, into the deeps with God. What's the point here? Point is open hands, right? The point is open hands with God in every sphere of your life, every. This is where conversion starts. Conversion starts with open hands and it ends with open hands. The day you die, your hands better still be open or you'll be salt that's no longer salty. You still have open hands with God and you, you struggle and you, it, life is hard, man. I get it. It's hard. I've gone through some really bad things. But my hands are still open. I praise God for it, right? I don't take a whole lot of credit here. I trust what the Lord is doing in my life. But my hands are still open. Whatever comes, I receive. And whatever cost comes, I, you know, you, you, you think, well, I hope it doesn't get too hard because I'm probably not that strong. But my God's that strong, right? My God is that strong. I'm going to keep my hands open. I'm going to be salty till the day I die, God willing, right? I've made that decision. My hands will be open and I will be salty. I will not be a dabbler and a splasher. I'm going to swim in the deeps with God and let God reveal himself to me. Listen, this is the best invitation you'll ever get. Swim in the deeps with God. Swim in the deeps with God. And when we get on the other side and we run into each other, I want you to come up and tell me about swimming in the deeps with God and how awesome it was. And how you never felt more alive and more fulfilled and more full of joy than when you swam in the deeps with God. You know? God's just inviting, beloved, I'm done. God's just saying, hey, come on. Do you really want to live? Do you really want to live? Come on. Walk with me. All I'm saying to you is there's a cost to be paid, but ultimately, as we've talked about many times, there's no cost at all because fellowship with Him outweighs any temporal cost we may endure. So this is the gospel according to Jesus. We may have one more or two more of these sermons. I want to just talk about the red words, the gospel according to Jesus. It always ends up in one place, out in the deeps with God. It's beautiful, man. You're never going to get a better invitation ever. You may be a billionaire one day. You know, you may have the perfect family one day. You may have the best this world has to offer. It is nothing compared to a moment of intimacy with God himself. And listen, the intimacy comes when you're in the deeps. If you're hanging on to the lifeline, mm-mm. if you're dabbling and splashing, mm-mm. if you're in the deeps, man, <laughs> it's awesome. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We praise you. What a great text. Thank you for it. Thank you for the challenge. Be with us now as we go into a time to remember what you've done and how you've loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you guys have been around for a while. You know.